This is the Rehumanizing Project from Good Morning Liberty. Uh, my name is Amanda Griffiths, and I am from a lot of different places. I grew up in the D.C. area went to Los Angeles, USC for undergrad, then went to Chicago for my MA. Now I'm back at UCLA, so I'm back in Los Angeles. I'm getting my PhD in political science. And I also work part-time at a libertarian think tank or remotely for a libertarian think tank. So you said that you, you've moved around to a lot of different places and now you're going, you're, you're at UCLA now. Yeah. What's it like to be at UCLA and also have the political views that you have? Honestly, I have, it's been really wonderful. And I'm definitely, I, I get the sense that I'm, I'm an outlier a little bit ideologically, but A, I, I love it. I love that sort of situation. I've been in that situation all my life. I, I acted before this. Acting is also not known as a, as a place that's full of libertarians and mm -hmm. academia is not either. I really enjoy and have been uh, pleasantly not surprised but I have had very good experiences with people who have disagreed with me here and who disagree with me politically here for me it's it's practice it sort of feels like a proving ground I like debating with people in a congenial way and having my arguments strengthened sometimes being proved wrong uh, and always getting the chance to reevaluate my arguments because if I'll point out a flaw in something that someone else is saying it often makes me wonder okay well where do I do that so my experience at, at UCLA and, and uh, in most academic situations has been yeah I get the sense there aren't a ton of libertarians but I also get the sense that people are pretty welcoming uh, of heterodox positions and I, I haven't gotten that sense everywhere in life. I don't get that sense on social media, for instance, mm -hmm. but I, I try to surround myself with people that I know will engage with me and I know that I can engage with in a, you know, a collaborative, uh, but also, you know, challenging way. Do you find that um, there's a particular way that you go about talking about your differences in politics that say on social media, the way that you talk about things apparently from what I can tell is you're an idiot. Everything you think is stupid and you're wrong about everything. All right. Now I need you to admit that. And yeah. so maybe in person, that's a little different, right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's a lot harder to look, uh, to lose friends when you look them in the eye mm -hmm. and as social media makes it very easy to not do that. And of course the way that social media is organized, everything has to be very quick and really get at your emotions in a really core visceral way. So you have an inclination, you have a tendency to be more uh, combative and demonizing. I think you had Spike Cohen on uh, a few weeks back mm -hmm. and he is very good at talking about policy and talking about libertarianism uh, in a way that is not, not combative and not hostile. And what he does and what I try to do is ask questions and make the discussion less about trying to prove myself right or trying to prove my point right and more about 
if someone says something that I disagree with or expresses a view that I disagree with, the first thing I want to know is why they feel that way. And usually they feel that way because they want something similar to what I want, fundamentally. The aim is something that's similar. And again, Spike is great at this. And a lot of people who are good at political messaging are good at this, that what you do is you come from a place of true, honest, common ground. And my approach is always to be curious as opposed to being combative. Yeah, that is, I think, the a really important thing when you go into a conversation with someone is for them to know that you are actually, the really important thing you said was that you are willing to be wrong and you <laughs> want to know if you're wrong. And I always want to know if I'm wrong too. And And I think that's what really opens up the conversation. People will actually talk to you and then they'll consider your point of view too. They kind of feed off of that, I think. No, man, I, I want to be wrong. I, the, I, yeah. the, the best papers that I've ever written are just me trying to prove myself wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I want to know if I'm wrong. Actually, I hope I'm wrong about everything. I sincerely do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I hope we're not going in the direction that it looks like we're going. I hope I'm wrong. Unless it's wrong in the other direction. Unless it's like, no, it's in fact, it's worse. But, yeah, so, yeah. But, true, but, true, true, true. No, I, I hope I'm wrong and just like, uh, you know, socialism works and it's all beautiful and the government is actually the best thing for for achieving all of our goals. I hope I'm completely wrong about my feelings on that. Um, but so have you always been a libertarian or did you start off more left, more right, more right? It's, it's an interesting question. So I grew up in a, in a divided household politically. My dad's more conservative. My mom's more on the left. My sister, she's seven years older. She's more on the left. And initially I identified as, I, I was identified as a Republican. In fact, I was probably a little bit of a neocon. Um, and I found it was easier to explain to people, you know, you always have to do this disclaimer if you're going to defend a Republican position where you have to say all the things you disagree with the Republicans about. So for me, I would always start off with this, what, well, I'm, I'm, I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative mm -hmm. and go on from there. It became apparent that Republicans seemed less and less fiscally conservative. And Democrats uh, seemed less and less socially liberal, oddly. Uh, there was this, you know, the way that free speech is being treated now, you go back and compare that with, I don't know, with like SDS or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's very, very different from Berkeley in 1960. So I thought, well, that doesn't really fit anymore, what I'm saying about socially liberal, fiscally conservative. And I also had this aversion to identifying as libertarian because I thought all libertarians were capital L libertarians, which are the libertarian party is, is fantastic. It's a great institution, does great work. But I thought, well, I don't want to be affiliated with a third party and came to realize that libertarianism, you're trying to plot it on a left right spectrum is sort of trying to plot depth on a two dimensional grid. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Libertarians are rights based philosophy of government. Republicanism and democracy, they're more institution-based philosophies of government. So my, my aversion to identifying as you know, a losing third party in scare quotes didn't exactly fit because I wasn't giving anything up by admitting that I was libertarian-oriented. Then when I started working 
for a think tank that was libertarian, it got me to question things even more um, and got me to realize that that really was where I aligned more closely was with libertarianism as I understood it. I really like what you said about the two-dimensional view uh, of the, I, it's something I've always thought about, never really been able to uh, explain very well, but I think of our, our, a lot of people think of the political spectrum as if we're just on land and we're looking at the space between us right now, but really it's like we're in space and yeah. you got to have the other axis in there, you know, it's yeah. all over the place. And then the other way would be that it's actually, it's actually a circle <laughs> that it goes around. And to me, uh, to me, you know, uh, communism and fascism kind of end up on the same, almost next to each other on that circle. And then all the way around the other side is actually libertarianism. And, I and so, yeah. you know what I mean? It's just so hard to explain that, but yeah. it, it really doesn't fit on left, right. And you say the middle and it, that doesn't, that doesn't really work, you know, well, because the, the middle of what, I mean, I, honestly, yeah. it, for me, and this started with the election of Donald Trump, but it, I felt like I didn't have a home in the, in the, in the Republican party anymore that, you know, Republicans hadn't been fiscally conservative for a long time anyhow, but I, at least <laughs> I, I could appreciate the effort and the lie. You know, mm -hmm. they're at least their, their platform looks, looks. The, rhetor the rhetoric was there. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, yeah. you know, you, you get a gold star for effort mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, so I, I realized that people who were fiscally conservative didn't have, a, didn't have a place in the Republican Party. People who were social liberal really didn't have a place in the Democrat Party. So yeah, and what you say about horseshoe theory, which is what I've heard it called, mm -hmm. it's like the ends of the horseshoe, are is very true that communism, fascism, they, they sort of end up in, in the same place uh, when, I, when I look at it. Yeah, uh, now... Growing up, you said you were divided in the household. Did you have influences like tugging like, oh, you got to be you got to be left or so you got to be right. Or was everyone just kind of, oh, you know, be whatever you want to be. Um, neither. <laughs> so my my dad was uh, was he worked for a, a direct mail organization, which before social media got to be a thing, that was how you raised money in politics was direct mail. So he had not just political clients, he also had some animal welfare clients, which was cool. Got, I got to meet nice. tiger cubs sometimes, but uh, he would take me to political rallies occasionally. That was always a really good way to escape from whatever perils of home life uh, <laughs> where I was undergoing at that point. And for me, that was, I, I immediately fell in love with, with politics because it was a way, oddly, it struck me as the most transparent arena by virtue of its intransparency. You know, it, you, you were rewarded for looking at the world cynically or skeptically. Yeah. And I thought, you know, if I can understand how this works, this is a microcosm for everything else, every other arena of human existence. I can, I can understand how life works. So I, I was immediately taken by it. And I think attending political rallies awakened that that sense of catharsis that you can get sometimes through political participation you know the rally what it used to be is it used to be its own discrete medium of political communication it was supposed to rally the base so you had 
it was almost an outlet for those kinds of Manichaean self other moments, similar to watching fights in hockey. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's to vent, it's cathartic. And now, of course, discourse is, it seems like it's all a rally. Yes. It all feels like a rally. And then so you lose the magic of, of the rally for that reason. You look at rallies like they're policy events now and they're not. You read political stories like they are uh, like they are rallies. You inhabit that same paradigm as you inhabit when you attend a rally. So it wasn't as though I was, I was being told to be Republican or be Democrat or whatever. I think because I attended political events with my dad, I got more of a sense of where Republicans stood on things. And of course I heard them defending their positions. Uh, so I think I was more inclined toward that. Since you were, were leaning kind of Republican and now, now libertarian, that means obviously you don't care about people who are in, in bad positions in life, right? right? That's, that's <laughs> what that means. What would you say to someone who would make that, that kind of crazy assertion about being a libertarian? Well, it, it would depend on, on why they believed that. I think a lot of times um, <clears throat> the reason that people believe that is they have this, this myth. It'll, it comes back to this myth of the atomized individual, that libertarians just believe in looking out for themselves, uh, looking out for uh, their money, whatever, their property. And what I see as so unique about libertarianism is it's not about atomized individual individuality at all it's about the ability to create your own meaning in community in family in in passion in being able to choose what you do and choose why you do it and for me libertarianism says okay how do we structure politics so that uh so that that can be the core element of society, the sense of individual communal meaning. Um, I see people who disagree with me politically. Typically, we have the same goals in common. We want people to be able to pursue their own meaning, their own purposes, their own values. And we go about that differently. But I look at it as we want to make the unit, the family unit, the community unit, the common denominator, and we want to be able to help individuals find meaning and purpose outside of just political activity. Do you think libertarians need to work a little bit on getting away from, you know, I, so I'm a big Ayn Rand fan, I always have been, so the, they're, they're labeled with the, so, the selfishness, and of course selfishness is known today as a, as a bad thing. I don't think she meant it as a as the way that we use selfishness today. Do you think we should try to find a way to rebrand away from the this is mine so you can't take it. This is my stuff. I want my money. Uh, do you think that just comes off as crazy selfish or do people just need to open up their mind a little bit and, and stop thinking so narrowly? You know, so... One thing, one funny thing about Ayn Rand, by the way, and you, this might be untrue. So tell me if this is apocryphal. I heard that Ayn Rand initially wanted to call her philosophy existentialism, and then she realized existentialism was taken. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that's funny. If it is, I haven't heard uh, that. I don't, I don't know. 
okay. Yeah. Because libertarianism to me does sound a lot like existentialism. Mm. <laughs> um, I, libertarians are really good at explaining the logic behind their policies. The problem is that you can't just defend a policy from a practical position. There has You have to defend it from a passionate position. You have to make an emotional appeal. And libertarians, I think, are, because of the way that we tend to think sometimes, tend to think that, well, if we can just explain to people why our positions are right, then they will listen to us. And that's really not exactly true. That emotional human element does need to be there. Uh, so yes, I think that there are things that libertarians could be doing differently, saying differently. Um, and a lot of that uh, comes back to not allowing libertarians to just exist as straw men in media and in public discourse. So, yeah, I, I think, and you already mentioned Spike Cohen. I think he's, I think he knows exactly what he, it's exactly what you're talking about there, that we've got to have a more passionate approach to these uh, problems. And we, we did, when we did our speeches at Young Americans for Liberty, we did it exactly on that point and that we have to approach things from an emotional standpoint. Uh, and because that's how most people think. It doesn't mean we have to go against our principles, but we have to talk about the the poor and the, the people who need help and the people affected by, uh, I don't know, the lockdowns, things going on right now. We have to talk about those and we have to say, I care about those people and that's why I'm a libertarian. Like You're not taking the situation as seriously as I am. I follow. <laughs> I'm actually, I want to help these people. That's why I settled on libertarianism, you yeah. know? Uh, because, and I think people aren't quite getting there yet, but that's why I've been really excited about Spike being in the party. Spike's great. Your surrogates are great. Justin Mosh is a great surrogate. And I, I would love to see the LP and, all, and really all libertarian outlets, not just the LP, really anyone with a with the PR department, really start deploying more people, different types of people to go in and represent these ideas publicly, uh, plugging libertarian podcasts on non-libertarian podcasts, things like that. And yeah, your point about the lockdowns, the, the people who are hurting most from the lockdowns are not the people who are able to do their broadcasts from their living rooms. Mm -hmm. They are people who are in the service industry. They are people who are being laid off, who can't afford to have their hours cut, who've already, who have their hours cut by the way, every time minimum wage goes up. Yeah. That's another thing. I've worked in restaurants a lot of my life. Every time minimum wage went up, hours went down, tips went down people struggled more, but you know, are already struggling for all these reasons. And then on top of that, they can't even go to work. And they're, they're the people who can least afford to have that, that time taken away from them. And it, you know, then you think about kids too. School choice is a big deal for me. Ed education freedom is a big deal for me. The fact that there are children who are very, very young who are really having their development altered fundamentally because of having to be in front of screens for hours, and that's that's their mechanism of social interaction. I don't know exactly what that does because we haven't studied it. We don't know yet. My sense <laughs> is that it doesn't do awesome things, and yeah. I could be wrong, and I want to be wrong, but 
I think I, I it feels cliche, but I, I do I think a lot about what what this is gonna do to to kids um in the years ahead. And that's what scares me. So along those lines, I don't know if that is uh, your issue, but what would you say is the number one, like the biggest issue for you on a political line that that you care about that you would do something about? Uh, Policy-wise, it's certainly school choice would be a very, very big one. Uh, it's funny, another area that I never thought I would be very involved in that I'm involved in now in my work is, is monetary policy. I... I <laughs> thought that was so crazy when I started working in, in that area, uh, but I'm fascinated by it. And the way that we, we treat the role of the, of the Federal Reserve in, in what should be market competition, uh, in financial markets, and in, in regulation, needs to be reevaluated dramatically. The way that Congress treats the Federal Reserve needs to be reevaluated dramatically in terms of you know no more funding agencies off the book <laughs> using <laughs> federal reserve funds those are two very big issues for me are, are and i know they they sound very different but education school choice allowing parents and families to be able to choose uh I think it's called open enrollment, not in the sense of healthcare, but in the sense of being able to enroll your child in any number of schools in in a not even necessarily in a district. I think is it just makes sense. You think that would help pretty much every you know. Uh, my mom taught in a really really poor district where the the literacy rate was just skyrocket. I mean. And they just push people through all the time. They don't. They, they just push them through. She she ended up having to quit the school after getting death threats from the parents because she was giving uh, kids too much homework, like uh, having them turn st- something in uh, once a week and giving them a zero if they didn't do it. You know, uh, what do you think things like school choice would do for kids growing up in those situations or parents in those situations? Well, I think a lot of times school systems are overwhelmed and individual schools are overwhelmed. So school choice allows, first of all, it allows students to be more dispersed. So you don't have these overcrowded classrooms where you you really can only teach to the pace of the slowest or the the student who's struggling the most. Uh, That student needs attention. That student needs individual attention, should have more. So what school choice would allow us to do in the first place is make class sizes smaller so that people can get individual attention that they need and that so that teachers can be less overworked and so that teachers can devote themselves to what they love, which is teaching, not just funneling kids through. It's been one interesting thing. I'm inter- I just want to know if after this lockdown happens, are we going to end up with more homeschooling, more of these? Uh, ho- like, could that, it, I don't want to look at it as a positive overall, because I think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of kids who are really going to be left behind or oh, very far behind schedule after this. Um, but we could end up with a lot more parents seeing homeschooling options in their areas. And uh, I, I think it could be maybe one positive thing to look at after this. Uh, that's a very small class size if you're being if you're being homeschooled. <laughs> yeah. Very small. Just hopefully, uh, hopefully they're using you know the Ron Paul curriculum and 
and uh, that'll be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and you know, homeschooling doesn't work for everyone, and yeah. that's why you know there's there there are charter schools. I don't know a whole lot about what the what pods are, yeah. um, but I you know I've I've heard good things about that. Um, and school homeschooling really has evolved over the past several decades as well. I know. Yeah, I think if we do see there is a way and their libertarians should be thinking about this, libertarian institutions should be talking about this, there is a way to try and preserve some uh, what are been temporary policy changes or, or modify them so that they can be used for, for good after the pandemic. I think that's certainly one of them, pointing out some of the ridiculousness in some of these zoning laws and school districting and forcing a student to go to a school that maybe doesn't suit them. Absolutely. So uh, tell me about tell me about this guy named Machiavelli. <laughs> so when I <laughs> and, when and I tell really... everyone the backstory the backstory on this a little a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I need I need to I need you to learn me real quick. Okay. Yeah. When I wrote to you, I, I think I told you that the one problem I had with with you uh, and with your show is that you're misusing the word Machiavellian, which you could argue technically is not true because you're using it as most people use it. So that's correct. Problem is Machiavelli was not Machiavellian as we understand the term. Mm -hmm. So I, I study Machiavelli. I started, I think I first read, uh, a translation of the Prince, the Discourses, along with the biography when I was maybe about 13. So it's been a long time uh, that I've been learning from him. And he, so he has been mistranslated quite a bit in part because people's first introduction to him in the English speaking wor world was actually not through a Machiavelli text. It was through this, uh, Protestant, so anti-Catholic writing during the Protestant Reformation, using Machiavelli essentially as a scapegoat for Catholic sacrilege. And so he wrote this book, his name's Innocent Gentier. He wrote a book called Contre Machiavelli, which means anti-Machiavelli. That's people's first introduction to Machiavelli is here's this awful Catholic guy doing awful Catholic things and mm. sanctioning. Machiavelli himself, it's funny because I'm loath to call anyone a proto anything i don't like saying well machiavelli was a libertarian he wasn't a libertarian libertarianism didn't exist as such mm -hmm. however when he what he writes and, and the way that he writes about liberty and the way that he writes about the relationship in particular between the individual and what he calls fortuna but which is what we would think of today as contingency or uncertainty is very radical and strikes me as a very libertarian idea of what the relationship between between individuality, between agency and contingency is, which is that you're meant to collide with uncertainty, you're meant to take risks, that's what enables creation. Reading Machiavelli has really helped to helped to elaborate help me to elaborate on why I believe some of the things that I do and it's changed my mind also on on a few things uh, it's changed my mind about my my attitude toward uncertainty it's changed my mind about uh, different aspects of, uh, of government and of society 
Machiavelli looks at discourse, I think, in a way that a lot of libertarians do, which is he's got this quote that tumults are necessary, that political political renewal is born through disagreement and through tumult and through clashing. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. What's bad are factions. What's bad is polarization. Tumults, very necessary. And so he is someone who I think would, would be very much uh, in agreement with a lot of the things that libertarians at their core believe today. And his own life was certainly not him living as a Machiavellian. He was, uh, he was falsely accused of conspiring to overthrow the, the family that was currently in power in Florence at the time, and went into hiding until it was made clear that if anyone knew of his whereabouts and did not report them to the government, then they would share his sentence. And then he went and he turned himself in. So that that's is not very Machiavellian. It's <laughs> not very Machiavellian at all, no. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I, I continue to study him, and he has been a source of, of a lot of uh, a lot of discovery for me, both politically and intellectually. So, so what do you think? Uh, I mean, was this just a a a old school smear campaign that, that led to this. I mean, is that what this is? I mean, you could look up Machiavellianism. I mean, it is, uh, it's not good yeah. <laughs> overall. No, and but, the Borgias had it worse, but that, that's another podcast. Um, yeah. No, yeah, there's honestly a lot of what it was, it had to do, and it's so funny because Machiavelli writes about this all the time with uh, how certain certain ideas sometimes come at the right time and sometimes they come at the wrong time and certain people come at the right time and come at the wrong time. Machiavelli's ideas came into the English speaking world at a time and he's not always translated very well because we have this, this preconception of him. He, yeah, he came into the English speaking world at a time when a lot of people in England and France didn't want to be very sympathetic to Italians who were just this conglomerate, they were just this block of Catholics in, in, that, uh, in that worldview. So he was a ready scapegoat because he was writing in a very distinctive way. He was an easy person to, to pin a lot, of, a, a lot of attributes onto that, uh, that a lot of Protestants want. And again, I'm, I'm not demonizing yeah. Protestants today. This is a group of people who had, a, who had military and political reasons to do this. But yeah, in some ways it feels kind of like a deep fake. Uh, and Machiavelli certainly has been the subject of many of those. So. Interesting. Well, I will, I will refrain from besmirching Machiavelli uh, in any time <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yeah, when, 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 you, uh, when you use the term Machiavellian now, you misuse of the term, but no. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uncertainty. I was wondering if you read a book called Radical Uncertainty before by John Kay. Have you have you heard of that one before? I've heard of it. Yeah. I, this, um, I have this ever growing list of books that I have heard of and then read like the introductions to and then, oh, look, homework. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's been one of them. Uh, but is I, it similar? I would recommend it. It's it, I found it very interesting. John Kay was someone uh, that we were. I read it because we were interviewing him, 
and I wanted to know, I wanted to get in his mind a little bit, and it was very interesting. It's called Radical Uncertainty, uh, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers is the subtitle there, but it is, I very much took it as you, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> and so it, it had a lot to do with decision-making and um, being known unknowns and unknown unknowns and all, and all kinds of things like that. So I just found it very, and that was my first dip into that that type of thinking. I've never really dealt with any type of the, uh, those kind of conversations before, and I wanted to uh, ha be prepped for our interview. So hopefully, I did okay with that for for him. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a. That, that I definitely need to work into that, look into that. That's, um, that sounds really cool and sounds very similar to, to the kind of thing I'm, I'm into. Yeah, and it's, it's funny as well, because when you think about liberty as, as the product of your idea of the relationship between, I call it agency and contingency, but yes, the individual and uncertainty, a lot of different articulations of both freedom and liberty can be framed in that way. And a lot of people and a lot of ideologies will see freedom and liberty as being freedom from uncertainty, freedom from the arbitrary. And government in early republicanism comes in, uh, smaller republicanism, and is supposed to help protect people from arbitrary rule. And both of despots and also of demos, the anarchic demos. And Machiavelli is one of these people who looks at that and says, well, you're looking at uncertainty the wrong way. That uncertainty is a is an integral part of not just political life, but of meaning and creation. And of course he doesn't use he doesn't use those terms specifically. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's an implication that it's essential to politics. Uncertainty is essential to political action and that you shouldn't try to resist it or overpower it. Uh, what you need to do is you need to collide with it. He uses a word that I translate as collide, but these collisions with uncertainty, these collisions with contingency is, are, are what enables freedom. Now, switching gears just a little bit, I, I was gonna, you know, we want to know why uh, you are, in fact, not just a terrible person for being a libertarian, but also want to know what you think uh, about people who are on the other sides. Do you think, um, where do you think they go potentially wrong? And is it not, is it not being able to think about being wrong, not being able to accept that, or uh, have they just not read the right book yet, or are they thinking more emotional? Like, where do you, where do you think they are? Or do you just hate them because they're idiots? <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely not the latter. Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, it depends on the person, it depends on the ideology, just as if, if you have two libertarians, you have three opinions. It's probably the same for a lot of other. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an old rabbi joke that I changed. But, nice. yeah. So I think that on the one hand, it's very easy for people who are on the left as it exists today, uh, it's very easy because there seem to be more mainstream echo chambers for them. And so it's, it's easy to go through life not being as challenged. 
I remember shortly after the 2016 election, there were all of these expeditions into the wild to see the Trump voter and encounter the Trump <laughs> voter. Like you're, you're encountering a different species. And I just remember thinking, wow, I have been living that sort of in the inverse, although I wasn't a Trump voter, I, I'd been living that in the inverse my entire life. I had been living among people who were on the left and encountering these different ideas. And that didn't make me better or worse or smarter, but it just, it was kind of sad that I, I think a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to be engaged with and, and be challenged to think about things that you just kind of take for granted. Um, for me, I have always been, I, I have kind of read life critically and just all situations critically. And so anytime I read anything, I'm immediately skeptical. So I, I sort of am primed to read things in a skeptical way. But I think when you don't come, up, come from a framework of questioning everything, it becomes easy to let things slide. And I, I want to be very careful as I'm not in, I, that I don't insult anyone's intelligence or capacity for critical thinking. Uh, I, we all have our blind spots. I think right now, socially, it's easier for people who are on the left to have certain types of political blind spots. And I think that for people who are more conservative, who are more I don't know, I don't want to say pro-Trump, but that they tend to be more and more isolated by virtue of being closed out of a lot of other spaces of discourse, either because they just feel uncomfortable there or because people have stopped being friends with them. So that contributes to some of the insularity. Libertarians, of course, were sort of straddling all of this. And yeah, I think a lot of it is just the product of the increased polarization that people think differently and tend to demonize others. Do you think people have really changed over time? Like we, we, we read a lot of history and we know about all these, uh, these different terrible things that have happened in the past. Uh, do you think human, that human nature has actually changed at all? Or is this just all completely predictable? What's going on? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I know, I don't even know what I think human nature is <laughs> or, or if it exists. You know, to some extent, yes, we have an innate tendency to, to see the world in terms of self and other. And in some, to some degree, that's necessary because if you can't make distinctions, then you will go insane because there's so much stimulus you have to distinguish. Self and other is just, that is, that is the political distinction. Um, I, I don't think that's changed. What I think is, and I'm still, I'm still working through this, I think in a lot of ways, the way that we communicate politically has outpaced our capacity or outpaced the way that we think politically. So we're playing catch up. And I think that's the cause of, of a lot of what people see as an increase in polarization. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, when I've, I've, I've heard and I've read that early press outlets were incredibly partisan. Mm -hmm. the, the difference was they admitted that they were. <laughs> and yeah. it was very, very much up front. Um, there's an argument to be made that, that news media should just admit their partisan bias and then people can 
choose either what they want to listen to, which they're doing not anyway, or they they can know up front, oh, wow, I'm encountering something that's different from perhaps what other people are saying. Um, so yeah, in one way, I think things have changed. In one way, I think that we are working through a phenomenon that's repeated anytime we see a lot of technological advancement, but it'll get more and more severe, I think, because with every innovation, innovation gets faster and faster. Mm -hmm. So we're behind. Yeah. I, I always, I always wonder uh, whether or not social media in general has had a positive effect or a negative effect, net negative, uh, on, you know, there's obviously tons of benefits, but then there's also uh, a, lo a lot of bad things that come from it too. But also kind of what you were saying, I, I think maybe we, I think we're kind of looking on the past with a little bit of a brighter lens than what it actually was. You know, uh, I think people in town were more than willing probably a long time ago to yell things at, at people that were walking by, especially if they were, if they were different in some kind of political nature. I mean, I don't think that that would have been completely off limits a hundred years ago. Uh, and, it could have been more in person at that time than what it is right now. Maybe this is more disconnected from the negativity than what it used to be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and one thing that is, that is true, that is different is that politics used to be a lot more localized. And if you did want to yell at somebody, you usually did have to yell at them to their face. Mm -hmm. uh, now, local politics is some weird extension of national politics. And if there's, you know, if there's a fire next door, it's somehow Donald Trump's fault. Maybe they're both orange. I don't know really what the yeah, link is, but there will be a link. And yeah. so, yeah, everything draws back to, everything draws back to national politics. I think that that's, that's a twist that we haven't quite contended with yet, at least not in the information age. I think it'll be really interesting uh, by the time your episode comes out, if we know who the president is at that time. It will. It what will. Have, what have been your thoughts about the last few days? How do you feel about that? You know, and again, this episode's probably going to come out. We're going to know more. So <laughs> I don't want to make a whole lot of predictions. What I will say is that in my experience, Republicans are a lot better at conducting honest postmortems than Democrats. The bar is not particularly high, I will say that. <laughs> but after you know, after the uh, 2008 and 2012 losses that the Republicans experienced, there, there was a, a really kind of keen understanding that the Republicans had, if you look at some of their briefs that they sent out between themselves after that. They, they sort of knew what they needed to do. That went belly up for a number of reasons. But they knew what was going on. I think in 2016, there was an adamant refusal to, to acknowledge some of the weaknesses that, that Democrats had uh, among themselves. And I don't know if, I mean, they, they didn't win nearly as, as much as, as they wanted to win if they did at all. Um, I think both parties need to do a lot of soul searching. I see both parties trending toward populism in different ways, which makes me think on the one hand, 
there's an opportunity for libertarians here mm -hmm. uh, because if there's one thing that we don't do well, it's populism uh, because that's all about displacement of self onto another figure. And libertarians, of course, are, are very much about meaning and self. Mm -hmm. So it, it's an opportunity for libertarians. Um, on the other hand, it will require some work and some organization some realizations for, for libertarians as well. I I think it's it's a little bit late to talk about an upcoming realignment. The fact is that re Republicans and Democrats are in the middle of one. Um, I think it will be very easy if Biden ends up winning to overlook the fact that he won by a much narrower margin, narrower margin than anyone expected. That will be to the Democrats' detriment. I think that if Trump ends up winning, it will deprive the Republicans of a very critical opportunity and indeed a necessity to figure out where do we stand fiscally, where do we stand socially, where do we stand in immigration, all of these things. We're about to get into the, uh, the annoying part of it because it looks like, as of today, the day that we're recording this, it looks as if. Biden might end up being the president. You people listening in the future, you you let us know uh, how how wrong I was on that prediction. Um, it, we're about to get into a potentially annoying time in my view of Republicans being very anti-government again, uh, being very small government. Tea Party might pop up again, something like something like that. And I really wish they. Uh, as we've been saying on the podcast all the time, I think they've lost a lot of their principled leg to stand on because you can always say, well, Trump did this. And, and I, I don't think that's going to be great for them. But I think you make a good point that there is a good opportunity here to to realign with uh, maybe the Constitution just in general, uh, fiscal conservatism, th things like that. I was going to ask you about libertarianism. Is it is it, is it ever possible to organize a group of people who don't like to be organized um, into groups? It, will that ever be possible to take a bunch of individuals who hate being lumped in the groups with other people and get all of them to go towards the same thing at the same time and agree on the one person to vote for? Or, uh, you know, are we just, uh, are we wasting our time here? What are, what are we doing? <laughs> You know, it, it's funny because I, I was the, the nerd who live streamed every single hour of the LP convention on Zoom. Uh, and so I do know the struggles yeah. <laughs> that libertarians face. Um, this, is, this is something that really fascinates me and that I, I, I'm thinking about more and more. Do we want more people to identify as libertarians or do we want more people to vote for libertarians? Uh, and those are two very different questions. So whether or not it's possible to organize as libertarians, I think what is going to be necessary for any type of libertarian who wants to be politically active or group of libertarians who does, to realize a couple fundamental things, going back to what I said earlier about the difference between rights-based and government-based ideologies. Well, rights-based ideologies, you're going to see a lot less disagreement on principle, but a lot more disagreement on policy, because these ideologies aren't necessarily oriented toward a particular set of policy solutions. And libertarians 
I would say need to accept that and to not treat uh, disagreements on policy as disagreements on principle. Um, I, I would love to see libertarians deploy a lot more unique types of surrogates, uh, not just people who are political figures or politicians, but you know, I, I'd like to see a lot more people representing libertarian ideas and voices in the media on different platforms. Since I said earlier that libertarians disagree a lot more than others on, on policy, it would be fantastic to have different caucuses or different leaders in libertarianism adopt different policy proposals or endorse some or, or write their own. Um, I, I think it's hard, it's difficult because you have libertarians who are strictly anarchists, you have libertarians who are civil libertarians, you have, I think they're called conservatarians, which was maybe <laughs> my little vanilla term that I used to use to, to avoid being in too much trouble with my friends. You've got all these different facets of libertarian thought. I think what's important right now is not necessarily coalescing behind one particular platform as much as getting these avenues or getting these different perspectives put into practice, getting people elected down ballot. That requires organization at a lot of different levels. You know, it requires a lot of training. It requires a lot of people being politically active and finding opportunities to be politically active at all levels of, of government and in their communities. So it'll take some work. I don't think it's hopeless though. Yeah. What, what I, what I wish we could come together on is uh, I think a lot of us have pretty close to the same end goal, uh, r close. And maybe some people will get off, uh, like Stapleton would say, get off the bus before some of the anarchists would just keep going. <laughs> You know, but we have pretty close to the same end goals. I feel like there's a, a very, there's a large lack of strategy and there's a very large lack of kind of long-term strategy for maybe we'll need to step down these systems over time. And therefore, uh, maybe it doesn't mean I'm not a libertarian because I would, uh, I would love for a Rand Paul to get elected as president. He's not a strict libertarian, but in my mind, I'm looking at, okay, 50 years down the road, does that start with a Rand Paul? And then a, a, did it start, I don't know, did it start with a Trump and then a Rand Paul or however th that works? I think there's a not very much vision for a long-term strategy into the future. I would really love for someone to, to, to map that, the Libertarian Party to map that out. Here's all the steps. Someone needs to write a book. Every single step that we would go through all the way down to when it was Libertarian government and when you say, okay, this person right here, do they fit inside of those steps going down? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. cool. I guess we could go for that. That's a step in the right direction, right? Right. No, I'd, I'd love to be on that committee. So, yeah. so no, I, I, I dig strategy. I do. And I, uh, especially with regard to communication strategy, um, I, I did PR for a little bit. And it's, it's fun and you learn a lot. And yeah, I, I think there are there are ways, right, to, to push the Overton window. It's every vote for a libertarian candidate is a signal. It, it's not necessarily a belief that that libertarian candidate will win. I had no pretensions that I did not think that Joe Jorgensen 
Jor Jorgensen was going to win, sorry. But I did think that every vote for a heterodox candidate is a signal. And when libertarians get their policies into government, however, whether it's a Democrat pushing those policies, whether it's a Republican, I would love to see a Democrat, quite frankly, run in the, in the Democrat primary, but run as Ron Paul did. Mm -hmm. Just just Ron Paul as a Democrat. I would love to see something like that. Push the discourse in a certain direction so that people are actually talking about some of these policy solutions that we want. People are talking about school choice in a different way, talking about police reform in a different way, talking about spending smarter uh, on the military, which often means spending less on the military. And, you know, I'm with you. I, I think a lot of times incremental change is much less satisfying but it is much more necessary. I use the Fed as an example. Uh, first of all, I don't think we need to end the Fed. The Fed's doing a good job ending itself. And that's sad <laughs> to me because uh, I, if the Fed were just to collapse tomorrow, you would have uh, the markets in a state of absolute panic. And you would not see uh, you know, just rallying, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and recovering. These decisions and these changes sometimes do take time and they take numbers and they take support and they take not being crazy, but at the same time, being willing to say controversial things and be combative and not just co-opting phrases from other parties and other movements. Uh, they, they require ruffling feathers, but also defending that, defending mm -hmm. those positions. So last thing I've been asking everyone, and this is so non-governmental, non-policy proposal. If there's one thing that you could fix, you had unlimited amount of money and you were going to take on a charitable cause of some kind and you were going to fix it. Once you did it, it was fixed. Uh, what what would that be? And it, you can, I know it's a tough one. It's a big it's there's a lot riding on this right here because you're going to fix it. <laughs> There's a lot on this, on this imaginary money that I mm -hmm. have. Um, yeah. What immediately springs to mind is I would, for as a charitable cause, and again, not as a government program, I would love to be able to fund every single child's education through whatever level of education okay. that they've chosen. Um, that I think would be fantastic. And again, I don't think government can do that uh, because I think that you know, if that ends up happening, then quality goes down for a number of reasons. But I think that that is absolutely one thing that I, I, would, I, would, I would jump at the opportunity to be a part of that. That's just me trying to go to the most extreme to figure out exactly what uh, the most important thing to you would be to fix. <laughs> so that's a good one. So, Education yeah. for all the children. I like it. For all, yeah. Not on Zoom either, but yes, in person. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, I, I will try not to, uh, uh, like I said, I'm not going to say Machiavellian anymore in a, ne in a negative way. Actually, tomorrow I'm going to come out as a proud Machiavellian. <laughs> I, that would give me that would bring me so much joy. Yeah, no, I'll I, I'll answer all of your Machiavelli questions anytime. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, well, thank you so much. I will let you know uh, before this comes out. I, thanks for your effort on all of this. I, I'm sure it must be a chore. So it's a pleasure, and uh, and again, yeah, it's wonderful to talk with you.